in the long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to another episode of The Aggressive Life. I'm recording this intro after I've already talked to our guest. And the reason I'm recording this afterwards is because I'm kind of struck by the the conversation we just had. And it, and it, it makes me think about something about aggression. One of the elements of aggression is not knowing exactly what you're in for, but if you are open to asking questions and going down different avenues, there could be unique good things that happen to you. This is the case with Michael Jr., who is an amazing comedian. And I thought it was going to be all fun and games, and for sure we've got some fun and games, but ended up getting some th- into some things that are going to help me professionally and I hope help you professionally and personally as well. And only because we're willing to go off script, only because we're looking to listen to somebody, only because we're looking to ask questions. I wonder how many of us could get things to help our life if we asked more questions. I wonder how many times we've had an opportunity to go forward, but we were too passive and we didn't ask questions. We didn't actually pause. One of the biggest regrets I have in my life, moments in my life, is when I was in my 20s and I was driving to a wedding in Philadelphia, which was about six hours away from where I lived at the time. My wife and I were going there and I ended up running out of gas on the Pennsylvania Highway. And this is before the days of cell phones and everything else. And so your options are two things, stick out a thumb and hitchhike or get walking. So I chose to walk. I walked on the side of the highway and I saw there was a big house, uh, uh, looked like an old farmhouse. And I figured I, I would walk there and get a phone and try to figure something else out. So I, I walked over and there was this old farmhouse. I went up and I knocked on the door and this old gentleman answered. And of course, who's, who's walking to his house in the middle of nowhere? And I was a little bit nervous about that. And I said, Hey, my, my car just ran out of gas. Do you have a phone book? Yes. We used to have these things called phone books. There were these really thick books full of a lot of thin pieces of paper that had all kinds. Of, and you could look up the name of somebody or you could go to the back of it and look up a category. So I looked up some category of somebody who would bring me a gallon of gas. And uh, as I was, as, as he was looking for his telephone book, I was in this little room where his telephone was and I saw all of these photographs, old black and white photographs with Babe Ruth, Harry Truman, important dignitaries on a runway. And I noticed that these were all personal photographs And I saw that this looked like it was him, a younger version of himself in some of these photographs. I realized I was in the house with somebody pretty special, somebody 
who had a real story. And to my discredit, I was too passive to ask any questions. To my discredit, I didn't probe to see who this man was. I was still ashamed that I was running out of gas, ashamed I was knocking on a door, concerned that he would kick me out. I I don't know what it was, but I look back at it now. Of course, this is an older gentleman that would have loved to answer some questions from a younger 20-something-year-old guy, or at least he wouldn't have punched me. But I was was too passive to ask any questions, and I missed out on a gold mine that day. It's one of my huge, huge regrets, and I've made a decision ever since. When somebody appears to be interesting or when you have the opportunity to learn something, ask, because you just might get blessed. And I think this is going to happen to you today with my guest, Michael Jr. We live in a chicken little world. Our culture is 24-7 news and push notifications will have you convinced, oh no, the sky's falling. It's easy to be serious too serious. It's easy to be worried. It's easy to be afraid. Perhaps the most aggressive thing we can do now is choose to laugh or choose to ask a question. Michael Jr. grew up with plenty of reasons not to laugh, including a serious reading disability. And instead of being limited by it, he used it to teach himself how to see the world differently than everyone else. And in a series of now aggressive moves that we know were aggressive and effective and successful, he now finds himself touring the world as a comedian. He's appeared on The Tonight Show, The Late Late Show, The Late Late Even Later Show. No, there is no such thing. And Jimmy Kimmel Live, among others. Besides making us laugh, he's got a lot to say about making aggressive choices. Welcome to The Aggressive Life, Michael Jr. Wow. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Can For, I say thank you three yes, more times? Yes, thank you, you can. Thank you, thank you. Yes, you can. But uh, like, how did you get the last name Junior? Your last name is Junior, oh, Michael Junior. Yeah, that's uh, that's how far I went in high school. So I just was <laughs> like, you know what? Let's let's roll with that. <laughs> you went to be a junior in high school. Is your dad Michael Senior? Yes. Wow, you are prophetic or something. That's awesome, man. I appreciate that. Or I'm actually funny. I'm trying to be funny. It's interesting. Whenever I'm with certain guests, I always try to be relatable and be cool and hip. So like when I've got the athletes on, I try to act athletic. When I when I've got the politicians on, I try to act like I understand issues. When I when I have you, the very first comedian, I'm trying to be funny. How, how am I doing? So anyway, your church is awesome. I really appreciate <laughs> being there. It was amazing. How do you act athletic? I don't understand. What do you? Well, do you, <laughs> right, especially when you can't see me. Like if, if the video camera was going on, I just try to maybe flex a little bit. Not that that would impress anybody, but I I try to drop football nomenclature. Like you know, when you're in the dime package or something like that, and I don't even know what the dime package is, but it's, it makes me sound athletic. So that's Nom- what I do. Nomenclature. Let's just stop right there. Nomenclature. For a I don't even know what that is. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have. A, I'm gonna have a sex therapist on. Actually, it's one of the guests I'm looking forward to, and I'm afraid of how I'm gonna try to relate to her. That could be really wait, wait, scary. Wait, wait, wait. Are you looking forward to it, or is, is your spouse looking forward to it? Like, who's looking forward to this oh, interview? Um, my my wife Libby. She needs all the help she can get from me. That's for darn sure. I, I'm 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 <laughs> I'm having the sex therapist on so that uh, I don't have to pay for sex. therapy. There because in that department, it's me who's the uh, slow king class. That is brilliant. I like it. I appreciate your vulnerability and your flexibility and whatever problems that might bring. Anyway, I don't know what just happened. Okay. All right, brother. Hey, let, let's talk about your job and you and all that stuff. 
I'm I'm sorry to get theoretical here, but I've got to get theoretical. I, I think that, like, how much of your job is, is this is the way I make a living, and it's an honest way to make a living, and that's great. How much of is it that is that? How much of it is? The world is a very, very dark place, and I'm trying to bring a little joy. And how much of it is some other reason I can't think of? Why are you a comedian? Well, so all of it is really the same reason. Like, I've been given this gift by God, but the reason behind the gift, and I'm gaining more and more clarity uh, pretty much daily, is there's a – and this won't make sense at the very beginning, but as we talk more, it will um, – there's a lot of people out there who are really struggling and they don't understand how to do life or what their purpose is. And I get to create uh, content and experiences to help them figure it out. So that's really my driver. And when did that start coming to clarity with you? I know that you had a, a critical moment in front of a, in front of a theater, a movie theater. Why don't you tell us that story? Oh yeah, so that was a, that was one of my first comedically aggressive moments, if you would, and if I could mention part of your title. Yes. So uh, I was nine, I was I think I was seventeen years old. We went to the movie theaters uh, with some friends right after right after graduation, and um, all my friends were preparing for college, and they were getting ready to talk about they're going here, they're going to start studying this, or go to the service, and they're like, "Michael, what are you doing after school?" And I was like, "Um, I'm gonna go make a sandwich. I mean, I don't like I'm hungry." So I didn't really have any plans at all, but um, we go to this movie, we go to the movies and in the middle of the movie, the screen just goes blank. And a friend, a German exchange student said, I dare you go tell a joke. And he told this, and you know, at the time, if, if you dare me to do something, I'm like 18 years old, I'm gonna do it. So I went up on stage in front of this disgruntled audience and the only joke I knew was a dirty joke, <laughs> but I had to, um, but me and a friend had already made a deal that we wouldn't curse anymore. And so I had to rewrite this joke in my head as I walked. I had about 12 seconds to rewrite this whole joke. And I presented it in front of this audience. And all of these people laughed. And then they wanted more comedy. But I knew I didn't have any more jokes. So I knew instinctively I had to, I had to get off the stage. Now, I'd never been to the movies before where in the middle of the film, the screen just stopped. Like, it, literally, the movie stopped. House lights came on. I'm on stage. I delivered this joke. Everyone laughs. When I go sit back down, security comes looking for me to kick me out. Huh. And uh, this this lady, this white lady, I didn't even know, stands up and says, if you kick that young man out, I want my money back. And then some bikers and some dude, like the whole theater stands up and, and demands that they leave me alone and I can stay and watch the movie or they all want their money back. So it was like a such a powerful moment. Now, wow. in retrospect, I look at that. I used to, up until probably maybe a month ago, I used to look, well, probably three or four months ago, I used to look at that moment like, wow, that was really God giving me a glimpse of what he has me to do. But what I realize now is that is true, but I wasn't looking at the whole picture because not only did I make an audience laugh, I brought some people who didn't even know each other together to move something forward that was bigger than themselves. And that's really what I'm called to do. Like they found purpose even in that moment. And that was pretty, uh, and that's what I'm doing now, even to this day. Like, like people will show up for the funny, but then I'm able to deliver uh, something a little more, more times than not. In fact, in my last comedy special, the one we just, the one that will be released soon is called More Than Funny. And people think it's more than funny, like extra funny, but the truth is it's 
we layered some stuff in there that, that is way deeper than just just jokes. What was the reason for the movie theater wanting you to to leave? Was there a race thing? No, nobody was running. No, I'm just. No, it wasn't. <laughs> No. Well, you you mentioned there was motorcycle gangs. I think motorcycle gangs. I have my thing. Motor, most folks I think of are are white and motorcycle gangs, and so I just yeah, got a media no, so, picture of white people in the audience. No, no, they were white people, and there was a motorcycle gang, but they all stood up to my defense to tell security to leave me alone, and I need to stay. So we all came together as a result of that moment, and it was really pretty powerful. Let's talk about people. I'm sure that you studied. Have, have you? St- to be funny as you are, how much of it is you're a student of the discipline, like sitting down and breaking down people like Robin Williams or whomever? I mean, has that been a part of how you've crafted your discipline? That's a great question. Uh, and the answer is really uh, no. Yeah, I wish it was way more impressive than that. So I actually, it was weird. When I first started doing comedy, it was so weird. I actually completely, for the first maybe 14 years or so, I completely lost my taste for watching comedy. Hmm. Like I I would be at the club performing in Los Angeles or New York. And as soon as I was done with my set, I would get there right before my set. And then I would leave right after my set. And it it was, and I couldn't understand it. Meaning I wouldn't watch any other performers. It was really weird for a while. Like I just couldn't, and it wasn't anything particular. It wasn't any language stuff because I'm okay with that. Like I would, I'd never um, elbow rub at the clubs. And I realized what was happening is I was able to fully develop my own voice, like fully. Hmm. Um, If you look closely right now, any comedian, well, it depends on their age, but you can actually, if you look close enough, because now I really like watching comedy, I can actually tell them who their biggest influences were based off their comedy style. But I'm able right now to do comedy that really isn't like anyone else's. I'm not necessarily saying it's funnier, but my perspective is completely different. Especially, I had a, a moment that kind of changed everything outside of a club in Los Angeles. And I'll just pause and you can ask me what that moment was. Have you ever had a moment that just changed everything for you? Oh, uh, no, man, no. <laughs> No, no. You are are a bad guest. You're a bad guest. You're setting me up to look bad. The whole reason podcast people like me have people like you is because we want to look good. We want to look impressive. And you're not helping the script, man. Come on, make me look good. You know what? That is an amazing question you just asked. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. First of all, there is a moment. I don't know how you knew there was a moment. But yes, there actually was. So, uh, you know, as a comedian, our number one thing is really to, oh, by the way, I I understand being a podcast host because I, I too have a podcast. You do. What is the name of that podcast? It's called Michael Jr. Off the Cuff. Ooh. And it's um, it's me, just me and uh, my tech guy from the shows. It's me and him talking about what happened in that city at that show. And uh, and then we, we kind of improv and then we go and play a clip from the show that was 100% improv. Oh, wow. So it's kind of cool. It's called Off the Cuff. If anybody wants to listen to that one instead of this one, you can you can tune out now. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy. Anyway. Oh, uh, so the moment that changed everything for me, I shouldn't say everything. It was pretty dramatic. So I'm as a comedian, you know what you want to do really is get laughs from people. Like it's pretty easy math. It's an easy business. But I'm outside this club in Los Angeles 
And uh, right before I got on stage, I had like this change in mindset. Like I felt like a shift took place. It was really, it was clearly, depending on what platform I'm on, I, I clearly know it was God speaking to me saying, um, instead of trying to get laughs from people, I should go up there and give them an opportunity to laugh. Mm. Now, for a lot of people, that might be a little bitty change, but for me, it was a huge shift. So that same night, I went up on stage at that club in Los Angeles, and I, I didn't do a joke for probably the first 16 seconds or so. Instead, I just kind of waited. I kind of talked to the and the show was so much better. Because mm. it was, and what I realized is when you have a gift to offer someone, when you knock on their door, you don't hand it to them immediately. You wait until you're invited in. Mm. You assess the situation. When the time is right, you present the gift. So I did the show. It was great. We had, I mean, it was so relaxing because the audience can, what I've learned is the audience can kind of tell collectively when you're trying to get something from them. Mm. Actually, it puts them in more control. So as soon as I said, how can I give, it changed. And I leave the club that night. And I remember we were taking pictures and doing autographs and I'm outside in front of the club. And uh, I look across the street, and this is a really nice area. I look across the street, and I saw a homeless guy. I had never seen a homeless guy outside this club before, ever. But that doesn't mean he wasn't there before. That just means before I was asking the question, how can I get laughs from people? So why would I even notice a homeless guy? When I asked a different question, I started getting a different answer. I see this guy, and my first thought was, what about him? How could I give him an opportunity to laugh? And then it just kind of shook me a little bit. And then probably four days later, after asking that question, there was a lady in one of my autograph lines at a show. And she said the words to me, she said, you know, I run a homeless shelter. And I'm wondering if you've ever considered doing comedy for the homeless. And I said to her, nope, I never crossed my mind before. You better back up, lady. Because I was scared. Like, what does that yeah, look right. like? But then I caught her up a few days later and I said, hey, let's, you know, what should this look like? And I actually went, we went down to Skid Row and did my first event at a comedy at a homeless shelter. And we've done a bunch of them since. We do prisons, we use children's facilities. Cause in my thought process is to make laughter commonplace in uncommon places. Like that's where I wanna also do comedy. So whenever we're doing a big show, we always try to stop in and do comedy at those places. I, in fact, I founded a, a nonprofit to, to help us do exactly that. That's inspiring and I, I love your perspective. On how, how did you put it? Uh, I, I have to struggle with whether or not to get laughs or give people the opportunity to laugh. You said something like that. that I, I find a similar yeah. thing whenever I'm speaking someplace. I've got to have this gut check at the last minute. And, and I wish I did this more often. And I wish I did it earlier in my career. I just didn't. There's a fine line between wanting to perform well because you you want to feel the satisfaction of a job well done is a line between that and wanting to perform well so that people are genuinely helped. And that sounds like not big of a deal, but it's a huge deal, I think, in what the audience smells. Yeah, it's huge because it's really a heart check, meaning you know, the scary part about that is nobody really knows the answer until, I mean, except as well as you know the answer. So one of the things that I say sometimes to remind myself of this is if I need to fall on my face on stage and not be funny at all, and in some way it can be used to help somebody, I'm literally willing to do that. In fact, when you take that perspective, it allows you, because a lot of my comedian friends will be like, dude, how you doing comedy at a homeless shelter? What if they don't laugh? And immediately I'm like, I'm not there to get laughs, is the thought that I have. 
I'm there to give them an opportunity to laugh. So even if I, and when you have a gift for someone, it's not about, it's not about how many people want it. It's about how much somebody else needs it. Yeah. So even if I do a homeless shelter and no one laughs, which was really the case at that first shelter for the first 15 minutes, at least I'm expressing love. I'm literally standing on stage giving to these people. Like, and if, if they have to laugh in order for me to feel fulfilled, then that means I wasn't really there for them. I was there for myself. Well, and you could see that with some comedians, can't you? When, when they're not getting the laughs, it's almost like they start getting angry or they start getting bitter. They start belittling the crowd or they start like, I don't know, they start getting mean. It's, it's, It's somewhat funny, but as somebody who is a bit more in touch with his feelings or his inner demons than the next guy, I can, I can, I can smell it. I can sense it. It's funny. You mentioned that. Actually, I don't know if you remember, uh, Michael Richards, from Kramer from Seinfeld. When oh, he had yes. Yes. So I actually walked him. I was with him kind of walking through that process as it went on. We met. That thing happened. We were able to have. I'm talking. You, you were there that night when he was using the N word. Is that what you're talking about? I wasn't there that night, but I'd met him a, a few months before. And then when that thing took place, me and him had a phone call. He made some adjustment. And it was, it was, I actually, I'll talk about it in my book that I have, is coming out later this year, but, um, uh, we, I actually was able to walk him through that whole process. It was really pretty cool, man. But you're right. People get, when you're on stage and you're asking a question, whether you know it or not, what can I get? It immediately takes you out of position mm. to really be able to, um, give. The key is to understand. And some people think I love to give, but some people have a hard time receiving. So it's really about having that balance. You have to understand giving and receiving if you really want to be effective. I don't know that there's a more impressive speaker, uh, kind of a category of speaker, than there is a stand-up comedian. Like, you know, when I when I do my thing, if I'm talking about the Bible or whatever, the Bible's pretty set in what it says. I don't need a lot of creativity with it. I need some creativity, but there, there's a lot of stuff that I've got to work with. If you got a motivational speaker— right. Motivational speaker. I mean, he he's got a he's got his message, his gig or two, his message or two. He just keeps repeating over and over and over and over. He just keeps going and on again and again and again and again. You know, but you guys, man, I don't know. You just seem like you're out there. I know you've got some standard jokes that work for you, but you just seem like you're, man, you're you're just dangling naked more so than the average person. Give some tips or th- things that you've learned for people who s- do speaking in any environment. Is there anything we can learn from how you approach mentally, physically, spiritually to try to prepare and give something on, on a stage? What's, what's the name of this podcast again? It just got weird. I, I just, I just that, want to get that aggressive. Is aggressive. That is aggressive. Very good. So one of the things you have to do is if you can make the adjustment, this will help you be a very, a much, much stronger speaker. If you can make the adjustment of literally asking the question, what can I give to this audience as opposed to what can I get? And don't fool yourself. I'm Christian. I don't try to get stuff from people. By default, since the fruit, you've been trying to get stuff. Hmm. So you actually have to articulate the you have to articulate the question and then articulate your answer. You have to literally say, "What can I give to this audience?" It changes your frame when you walk up on stage, and it's not. It just immediately becomes not about you. So I was talking to a mechanic once. I was like, "What do you do?" He said, "Well, I'm a mechanic." I'm like, "Well, what does that mean?" He said, "Well, it means I get paid to fix cars." I was like, "Well." And then we started talking for a little bit. And at the end of it, he had a different statement. And the statement was, I, ex- I actually help ensure that people reach their desired destination. That right there will like put that. your alarm clock out of business. 
So if your goal is to give to the audience, it just, it just adds so much more. There's also some key things that you can do as a communicator. And I actually have a domain that maybe we'll link with three points on it that I do that explains to people how best to communicate through the screen. So it's, it's michaeljr.com slash on the screen. You can download it. It's free. But michaeljr.com slash on screen and they'll get it. All right. Hey, let's take a break here. And let me tell you, this episode is brought to you by Groove Life. You can get 15% off your next silicone ring or watch band at GrooveLife.com. The promo code is TOME15. Right now, I'm wearing one of these rings. I've been wearing these rings, one of these rings nonstop for a long time. So if you want to try one of these out, they're pretty darn cool and affordable. You can use promo code TOME15 and you can get 15% off. I remember when I was in sixth grade, there was a teacher, his name was uh, Mr. Utterback, and he used to have this exercise he would do about once a month. I'm not sure why he did this, but man, it was helpful. He would he would get a bunch of stray objects unrelated to one another and put them on his table, on his desk. Uh, it would be a, a roll of tape, a stapler, a pen, uh, just anything. And then he would call people randomly out of the class and he would hand them the stapler. And he said, talk about this for two minutes. <laughs> and you would see just people melt down. We're sixth graders just melt down uh, on, on trying to keep talking about it for, for two minutes. Or some kids were just like, okay, I can do this and look forward to it. I, I, I tell people all the time, like that, if you could get into environments where you just have to learn to not be nervous in oh, front of people, great. that's big. That is brilliant. That teacher is awesome, man. I wish, like, just just to promote that. So one thing I do with my kids, and because uh, I found out that, you know, because of texting and the way people communicate nowadays, they act, some people have some, some uh, anxiety around making an actual phone call. Hmm. Like, literally, if you're under 25, like, I've literally heard Craig Rochelle told me, as a matter of fact, that some people will rehearse what they're going to say if they're ordering a pizza online, like they rehearse it first or write it down. I'm like, what the deal? Hmm. So with my kids, what I would do is we played this game called um, answer the phone and I would dial a number to a business and just hand them phone and they'd have to have a conversation with the person. And whichever one of my kids lasted the longest would win the prize. So just so they could be used to having a conversation with a real person and not get so caught up in texting. And it's a blast too. It's so much fun. My, one of my daughters, I remember she called Walgreens and she was like, um, um, what's your telephone number? I was like, you, you just called. It was <laughs> It's very important that we we work on that. Your teacher, what they were what he was doing was he was working on that that he was working on the improv muscle. He was working on the confidence muscle. Like it was a really smart move. And he was pushing me. He was pushing us. And that's what you're doing with your kids. That's why it's called the aggressive life. We're not talking about just being a, a jerk to people. We're saying, I've got to push beyond where I am if I want something beyond what I have right now. And you're just, Whoa. you're dropping truth bombs and examples left and right. I'm I'm already feeling like a loser parent. Like I, sh- I should have done that with my kids. I remember with one of my, all my kids, we went into a restaurant and, they had to go up and ask the waitress for the menus, 
we need them to go. If, if, if she forgot the, the menus, they had to go do that. I wanted them pushing themselves to talk. And you're right, brother. Forget about just getting on stage in comedy. We're not talking to people any longer. It's a lost wow. skill. Wow. Yeah, you're 100% right. Like, that is really... Uh, and so I'm actually, so one of the keys that one of the things that I tell people to do, like literally visualize who your audience is, like visualize who, who they are, what they may be going through and get a, get a sense of the realness of the actual person. What about one thing if someone's given a sale presentation or somebody is doing whatever in front of people, is there, is there one thing, Hey, if, you should do this when you're in front of a group of 50 people, just make sure you. Yeah, just make sure you really believe that they need what you have. Oh, like you really cool. have to think about whatever that product is, whatever is in your hand, you have to think about, visualize even how this thing is actually going to help them. And if you can see that, if you can see them as better because of what you're offering, by you're, you're naturally going to do better things. But if you have to sell them and sell yourself while you're on stage, it's just not going to go nearly as well. So you got to believe it to the core of your being that these people need this. Absolutely. Like it's literally going to help them. You're just going to do so much better because, and they'll feel it too. People can feel when you're trying to help them versus when you're trying to sell them. And, and when you're giving people a stand-up routine in your mind, what are you saying that they need? Well, what they think, what they want is laughter, but what they need most of the time is understanding about something. So I will literally be on stage. In fact, we were in Nashville and uh, I talk about how comedy works, how there's a setup and there's a punchline. Well, it's the same thing in a, in a, in a talk or whatever. Um, and I do a little bit of coaching of, of uh, helping people speak or whatever. Not a lot because it's not, I don't love doing it. I, I like talking to the masses, but I'm in, I, I did a TED talk on the subject where I say uh, the way comedy works is there's a setup and there's a punchline. The setup is, and then in life, there's a setup and punchline too. Your setup is what you receive, but your punchline is what you're called to deliver. So I always, so I explained this to this audience in Nashville, Tennessee. And then towards the end of the show, I'd also explain to them how whenever I'm on stage, and this is important too for anyone who speaks on stage, I always listen in between the gaps. So I know what I'm scheduled to do. And I know what I want to say. But whenever possible, I'm listening in between the gaps and I'm asking the question, what can I give to this audience? So for me as a comedian, people may be laughing or there may be some sort of pause. But during that pause, I'm listening in between the gaps as in I'm, I want to know what I should do next, not necessarily what I have scheduled to do next. So at this one in particular event, I'm listening between the gaps and literally just you, I'm talking. I'm like, guys, so now what? What do they need? And I felt like I was supposed to bring this lady up on stage. And uh, I look over and I notice the lady that I feel like I'm supposed to bring up on stage. She's deaf. Well, I don't know sign language. All I know is the thumbs up and another one that I don't use anymore. Like, <laughs> like that's all I got. So I bring this. So, you know, I do another joke and I feel it again. I'm like, bring her up. On, so I bring this lady up on stage and there's a signer next to me who's doing sign language or whatever. And I ask her, I say, hey, can you ask her to come up on stage, please? There's 2,200 people. This show is sold out. We've just been laughing probably on a scale of one to 10, at least an eight. It's a great show. I bring this lady up on stage. Everybody sees she's deaf and the room goes silent because they don't know what's about to happen. And I don't even you know, know what's going to happen. How, how does someone see that she's deaf? Well, the sign language lady is in between her and okay, me. Okay, got that. That'll do it then. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the um, same way somebody can, can hear that you're athletic. 
It's like the same thing. Yes, I think it's the same. So, um, so she comes up on stage. So she comes up on stage, and then I I don't know what I'm gonna say to her until she settles in and she and and a couple seconds. And I say to her, to the signer, I said, "Can you ask her what is her biggest need?" I've never done this before ever. And the, the room is silent. And I said, "What is her biggest need?" And she signs over. She signs back, and she says, "Well." Um, uh, she says she doesn't have any needs. She's okay. And I was like, no. Can you ask her again, please? So she asked her again. She said, what's your biggest need? And then she comes back and she says, well, her and her um, husband have not been able to go out on vacation in over 11 years, not even for a weekend. And they could really use some time away. I was like, okay. And normally what happens there is we collect a bunch of money and we give it to them. But here's the thing about a punchline, a, a great punchline you never see coming and money is not a punchline. It's part of your setup. Mm. It is not a punchline. So all I did was ask the next question. I just said, why not? And um, she signed over, she signed back and she said, well, they have a special needs child and they can't afford a nurse who's qualified in a way that can take care of the child so they feel comfortable and they could leave. I was like, okay. And then I did something that was completely impromptu like the rest of this conversation. I said, um, I looked at my audience and I said, and they're still silent, really in shock, it seems like. I said, where is the special needs nurse who can deliver their punchline? And the room is silent, right? Silent. They're still like, what is this really happening? So I said it a second time. I said, where is the special needs nurse who can deliver their punchline? And you hear a voice come from the top balcony and this lady says, here I am. And she comes walking down. And the room goes berserk. And we introduce them, and they live 30 minutes from each other. Uh. And the whole room is done. Like, we're done. But what really happened? Like, somebody showed up with their setup, willing to deliver their punchline, and we got a moment that we'll never forget as a result of it. So that's just me listening in between the gaps, being okay with whatever I'm supposed to do in that moment, and being okay with not getting laughs but but asking the question, what can I really give to this audience? Mm. So when you ask that question before yeah. getting on stage, you really can make a change. You're leaving yourself open to actually make a significant difference that may not line up with what you were thinking beforehand. Damn. We got to close in <laughs> prayer right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little overclamped right now. I'm not even kidding around. Jeez. Yeah, awesome, Dude, that's... That is yeah. so good. That's such a great example because you're mm -hmm. obviously there because you're trying to bless people and, and you do bless people when they laugh because we live in a very negative world. But to go to the next level and go, okay, how can I bless them beyond a laugh and do that? That's that's yes. putting yourself out there, brother. This is just fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do feel and struggle. Like when I go on stage, I know I got to perform, but I, I always... I'm just asking God, is this really what you want? Up until the last minute, like, is there something different you want for the people who are here? Because at the end of the day, that's that's what I, I have to want is what God wants for the people who are there, not me to feel actualized because I had a crowd in the palm of my hand or thinking that I had the palm them the palm of the hand or feeling like I had their adulation. It, it's really about blessing the people. And I'm, I'm challenged to raise my game because of a comedian is mm -hmm. thinking on this level, mm -hmm. and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm challenged, man. I'm thankful for this. This is great. Man, that is awesome. Here's a challenge I would give your, your any of your listeners who do public speaking, is uh, I, would, I would challenge them to create gaps. 
are you so interested in what you have to say that you're not listening between? So when I say create gaps so you can listen in between them, right now, watch yourself speak on stage and then ask yourself, am I taking a pause? Am I listening for a moment between the gaps? Because first of all, when you pause, so I'm going to say two statements. One of them is, I'll say the same thing twice. Uh, so I was talking to this girl named Lisa at the, at the library, and she said hi. Now I'm going to say it again. So I was talking to this girl named Lisa. We were at the library when she said hi. Now listen, when I paused on Lisa, I gave you time to visualize what a Lisa might look like. Hmm. I gave you plenty of time not to just hold on to where I might be going, but I, at the same time, I'm giving myself time to listen in between the gaps and determine what I should, where I should take this story next and how I can help somebody else. So it's, it's great to do that before stage, but if you can get to the point where you can do it while you're on stage, now instead of having an audience in the palm of your hands, you could be on stage in the palm of God's hand so he could truly use you the way he wants to. Create gaps so you can listen between them. Yes. That, that's and powerful. On stage for sure, but in life as well. There's gaps in everything you do. And if you don't know, if you're not listening between the gaps and making the choice to, to do something for someone else, by default, you're making the choice to find out what you can have done for yourself. That Every is, time you cross a threshold, you're asking the question, okay, what's in here for me? That's a great transferable skill from your world to anybody's world. Is there any other skills that you found from, from your world that could transfer to other people's worlds. Because not many people are going to be comedians, but you're yeah. really putting on a clinic in terms of human yeah. psyche right now. Is there, uh, is there anything else? Let's just, let's just go to school. Yeah. And what else? One of the things that, that, that transfers from a comedic perspective onto life is as a comedian, I'm on stage working to deliver what I've been called to deliver. Well, in life, you have your, people have a stage and they're supposed to deliver something. Well, in comedy, more times than not, or I should say often, there's a heckler. And the heckler is trying to take you off of your game. And he's trying to keep you from doing what it is you're called to do. Well, in life, there's a heckler too. And the heckler could easily be the enemy talking to you and trying to take you off your game. Or that enemy could be a friend that's really not a friend. Or the heckler could actually be you. What are you saying to yourself that's preventing you from doing what you're called to accomplish? Like you have to know how to deal with your heckler. Otherwise, you'll be out of position. And after a while, if you don't check the heckler, like the Bible says, casting down every thought that is not of God. If you don't check the, your inner heckler, you'll start to believe that it's you. And then whatever you, whatever you think turns into words and your words are going to shape your world. And then you end up living in a place you don't necessarily want to be. I've always wondered what the psychological profile is of a heckler. So you're saying at your shows, people show up just to be jerks and they're just talking trash. Yeah, it'll, it'll happen, but I'm always prepared. Like it actually just, it, it, I mean, I don't want to promote heckling, but it adds to my show. But if you think, what, what is a heckler really? They're showing up asking the question, what can I get? So they're showing up because they want attention. And then they say the thing and then they get some attention, but it's not necessarily the kind of attention they might want, especially if it's at my show. So a heckler is asking the opposite question of what I'm telling your listeners to do, which is you should ask the question, what can I give? A heckler is asking, what can I get? Yes. So that's really what that kind of boils down to, man. Was there, was there a 
time when you felt like, okay, I've made it, this is going to be my life, or do you still not feel like you've made it? No, if I made it, then what am I going to do? Like, what what happens then? Like, I have a, I have a awkwardly strong, I shouldn't even say awkward, I should say an aggressively strong desire to help people grow. I just really, really do, man. And comedy is one of the tools that I use on MichaelJ.com. That, that's one of the tools that I use to accomplish that. But I meet new people on a regular basis. I have a friend I grew up with. In fact, today his daughter texts me. He's a, he, me and him, he was my first ever road manager. And he has this daughter that he just, I just found out about that he just hasn't been taken care of. So I flew her out to come um, spend some time with me and my wife at the house. And we just poured into her and really tried to encourage her that she can do it. But she doesn't even, like he never reaches out. And I can't tell you how much, not because I know him, but even when I see a stranger and they're missing it, I just, I just want to do anything I can first, maybe bring them a little healer with la- healing with laughter, but then I want to make some sort of deposit that is going to make a change, man. So until we're all set, like everybody's good and they fully know their purpose and they're smiling, then, then I would have made it. But otherwise I'm going to trust my kids to keep this thing going. I would have never, I would have never suspected that you have a, or have had a debilitating reading disability. And uh, I guess that shows how little I know about reading disability because Uh your mental quickness is, is truly stunning for me. You wouldn't pick that up on stage. I mean, on stage, obviously you're quick and smart on stage, but you've made instantaneous connections in the midst of this conversation that are mind blowing. Specifically, I talked about sounding athletic. I try to sound athletic with this, that, and then you, you'd link that to the, someone who looks like they're deaf, like you linked it and it came uh-huh. out of nowhere, like, boom, it, it, it's just a, it's just an example of how quick your mind is working. But do you, do you think well, much about you. that? Like, do you think much of, I mean, you're, yeah. you're very, very smart. Well, what, what's the link between your challenges reading growing up and how quick you are? I mean, seriously, you're. you're uh, yeah, that's a good, first of all, thanks for that, man. But I think it's a direct connection between the two, meaning the fact that I used to struggle with my reading. We didn't have enough money for me to get diagnosed with uh, being dyslexic. We couldn't afford dyslexia, I think is what it boils down to. Um, <laughs> But um, but there's a direct connection, meaning the fact that I used to struggle with my reading and couldn't understand, it caused me to look at everything else possible to figure out what a word was. Hmm. Then it just transferred over to life. I would look at everything else possible to figure out a situation. Sometimes the way I was looking at it was right, but sometimes it wasn't right, but it was funny. So now I have this ability, because of what I thought was a setback, I have this ability to look at life completely differently. And I explain to people, a lot of times you'll have a setback that... If you let it hold you back, it will. If you murmur and complain, you're not going to get to the promised land. But if you can recognize that your setback is actually part of your setup so you can deliver the punchline God has for you, it puts you in an amazing position to do something pretty phenomenal. I really, really believe that. So just if you really want to know what your purpose is, look at some of your setbacks in life. But the key is to not overcorrect. Like there's some people, there may be a, a woman who's been molested and she's dedicated her entire life to making sure nobody is ever molested again, no girl her age, but she has this degree in English and culinary arts. Like God's not going to waste anything. 
So you don't have to overcorrect. Like God will use all of it. So how do you use it all? So any setback that I've had, I realize it's part of my setup and I get to use it to deliver something amazing to the people around me. So Michael Jr. has been awesome. Uh, how could people follow up with you, see what you're doing? You got any good projects you want to clue us in on? Just, uh, just, just give us some help on how to get uh, connected. Oh, no, I don't got anything really, man. <laughs> Not true. Not true. So I have a uh, curriculum that we just created. Uh, it's actually not even officially released yet, but there is a website. We just haven't been pushing people to it. It's called Funny How Life Works. And what we've done is we've taken laughter and teachings about purpose and how to, how to really walk out your life's purpose. And we put it all together in a 24-pack of hilarious videos that you can watch with your family or your small group. And you guys can laugh and go through these lessons and really learn some stuff about really life. And it, it challenges you and there's some stuff that you have to actually take action to. So if you go to funnyhowlifeworks.com, you can find out about that. And then um, I have a movie coming out this year, too, that I'm excited about. No we'll, kidding. Yeah, that's I actually star in a movie that's coming out. What's it called? Uh, Titanic 2. I'm just playing. That's not true. <laughs> it's called uh, Selfie Dad. I actually played a, the lead role in this movie, but... They haven't given us a, an official release date, but we're pretty excited. The trailer should be coming out soon. How about but Instagram? You got anything on Instagram? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm Michael Jr. Comedy on all platforms. Michael Jr. Comedy on Instagram and every place else too. So, the boom, Michael. This has been just fantastic. You've man, you've added major value. I thought we were, I thought we were going to have a uh, just just some good laughs. We did have some good laughs, but man, you you push some huge, huge applicable material to all of us, and you did it aggressively. Way to go, brother. Thank you, man. Good stuff. Well, here okay. we go. We've reached another episode conclusion of The Aggressive Life. Hey, guys. Hey, ladies. Why'd your voice change? My voice changed because yeah. that's what podcast hosts do. Leave me alone. <laughs> Wait, leave me alone. This concludes The Aggressive Life. That was aggressive. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band Judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.